and welcome to Season 2, Episode 10 of The Coriolis Effect. And the legend goes... I'm Dave. And I'm Matthew. And we've got yet another packed programme. We never have a programme where we haven't got much to say, do we? Uh, no, we have had occasions where we've sort of thought, hmm, we might not have so much to say. And then an hour and a half later, we go, hmm, we had more than we thought. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, this one, we already know we've got a lot to say, so i better get on with it. We've got <laughs> yeah. lots of news to talk about in the world of gaming, both from Fear Gan and a couple of other Kickstarters, which, um, well, one other Kickstarter and one other game I just want to mention, because I just bought it recently. <laughs> then uh, we're talking about horror, <laughs> and particularly horror in Coriolis. Uh, so you've got some ideas you want to talk about there? Yeah. We've got some listener feedback Woo! and a question that we're going to answer. And that kind of leads into uh, a thing I've been wanting to talk about for some time, which is random adventure creation mm. in, um, in Forbidden Lands. We have very much been, we have very much been liking the, the, the random elements of Forbidden Lands. I mean, loving the random character creation. And then, you know, uh, I think really looking forward to hearing how you felt creating that random adventure um, went. Uh, as a player, it was brilliant and you'd never have told it was random. But we can talk about that a bit more later on. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think that um, I kind of have in my core of my being, and I think it comes back from years of playing, the idea that as a GM, you should have a story mapped out in your head and people should come and experience it. But... When it's a random adventure, even though it's one that I created before we started, um, I, it makes me as much of a player. I'm interested in seeing what happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think the skill is, I think lots of people think, well, maybe you should save this discussion for yeah, later. Yeah, probably should save it for later. Now, so I say it. <laughs> no, no, we haven't even heard your, well, heard your thoughts on it yet either, so... Yeah, but I, uh, yeah, I, Go on. I do think, I'm going right, to say it finish, now while, while it's in my head. Finish your thoughts. Um... I think some, some GMs go, oh, I couldn't possibly d be doing that random creation in play because I need to think how the story goes together. I need to react to it, and I can't think that quickly enough. But you know what? I'm thinking players need to react to the story too when you're telling it to them. Just their reactions are personal and physical, yeah. but they're just as quick-witted. Or, you know, as a, as a, as a player you react to the story in just as quick-witted a way that when you sit at the other end of the table and you're GM, of course you're quick-witted enough to <laughs> make up a story on the fly. So that, I've just said that now, um, and I'll probably say it again after after we've talked about it. Then we've got some news about the feed. Uh, oh, no, no, sorry, we haven't. Then we've got the Spectral Corsair report. You've um, played one or two games of that, have you? We do. I think... I th well, I'm trying to remember. I, I think we're up to date so I've got one scenario to talk about. Just got one to yeah. talk about. Excellent. But it's a good one. And then it's we've a got a little one. bit of news about the feed, which is um, partly we're victims of our success. <laughs> I'll tell you about that before we finish the programme. Excellent. Do stay listening to the end, though. Cool. Right then. Well, let's let's get, get on straight away then. Um, World of Gaming. So uh, you have quite a lot to talk about here, don't you? Yeah. Uh, but first of all, I want to ask you a question. Because I haven't even managed to have a look at it yet, but I know that the things from the flood PDF was delivered. Um, the final PDF, to us all, yeah, all of indeed. us Kickstarter backers, and um, I want to know whether you've had a chance to look at it and what you think of it. 
I've only had a chance to very quickly glance at it, actually. Um, I had a closer look at the, uh, the earlier draft that came through. Um, so I haven't really had a good chance to look at it. I, I'm one of those people that loves to get the hard copy book in my hand and, and sit down with a cup of coffee and smell the pages and then uh, rifle through the book. But And this is the reason I'm not getting the hard copy in my hand because I also like to rifle through the book. <laughs> and I know I'm not allowed to. There's quite a lot of it. In case you want to kill me as a teenager. Well, I, so, I um, definitely would like to run some more, uh, some more Tales from the Loop and then obviously Things from the Flood. And I mean, the setting is just is just really good. I, I I do love just the twist on parts of history that are deeply embedded parts of us. So you know, we all live through yes. the eighties. We all live through the nineties. And I think you know, just taking that twist on what is a very nostalgic uh, sort of part of part of my life, and then twisting it into a game like this in such a good way is 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 really exciting. So I'm I'm very much looking forward to playing it. The uh, the slight problem is finding enough time. We've agreed. Yeah. We've agreed that I'm going to run some start. Very much looking forward to playing it. My ass. I we, you know we're struggling to get the time to play the games that we promised our listeners. I know. Play. I know. <laughs> well, it might might just be have to start something that when we're all retired, we can then play a lot more often. Yeah. But, or uh, if we get made redundant, but uh, I don't think either of us have a chance of doing that. I was going to say you're about to to reveal something. <laughs> okay. Sadly not. I didn't get promotion that I wanted at work, yeah. but uh, that's about the worst news I can tell. I wouldn't. I wouldn't mind being. I wouldn't mind being made compulsorily redundant because then they'll give me a big, big bag of cash to fuck off, and that's fine. Yeah. Voluntary redundancy is not quite so good. For. Yeah, I know it's not. <laughs> not likely, is it? Yes. Anyway. No. No. Yeah. So a couple of games I wanted to mention very briefly. Um, one is Liminal, which was a Kickstarter about six months ago that I didn't back because I didn't have any money. I don't think I mentioned it. I might have mentioned it on the programme. You've definitely mentioned it kind of to me. One. I'm not sure whether it was on the programme or outside of the programme, but... Uh, yeah. Say it again, anyway. Go on. Well, again, that's been delivered in PDF form to backers, and it also appeared on drive Through, and I relented at this time because I was richer than I felt whenever it came out in the Kickstarter. And um, it's a gorgeous oh well it's only a pdf as i say but the artwork in it is gorgeous a lot better than i was expecting Hmm. giving it's um you know it's a relatively small press version remind me what the um what the thrust of the game is what's the what's the genre well the, the the game is modern day um british uh fairies and a supernatural underworld it's very much based on or inspired by i should say books like the rivers of london um police procedurals with magic which i enjoy okay frankly i'd like to make a game of um Hmm. another thing which radio listeners might have heard is pilgrim so but very british and very much a sort of investigative game and very much a the the liminal that it refers to is the is the the liminal area between fairyland and the real world yeah um and it looked as i say i'm I'm most stunned by the art i had no idea that the art was going to be as attractive as it is it's and for a small press production it looks really gorgeous and this is now delivered the kickstarter's delivered it in pdf form you say it's delivered it in pdf form and you can buy it on drive-thru which is where i bought it from and are they producing Um, a hard copy version 
and I think there's a hard copy or print on demand. Ah, cool. um, but I'm not that interested in that. No. Uh, although, if no, I don't know if it was a proper hard copy with the art as good as it looks on the PDF, maybe I would have mm. been interested. But um, it's funny, isn't it? How many games? Uh, you know, your your initial attraction to them is actually the artwork. You know, so Simba Room, yeah. Simba Room for one, uh, Tales from the Loop for another. Although the the idea of that game it was a very original premise anyway so that was quite interesting without Seaman Style and Hugs artwork um, and then now Liminal it just shows how important that kind of thing uh, is to grabbing grabbing your attention I introduced 4th uh, edition uh, Legend of the Five Rings to the group and uh, that came to me via a very cheap PDF offer in some sort of sale I mean crazy cheap yeah, three quid or something hmm. for the core book PDF and I picked that up and I was just so blown away by the art in that that I had to rush out and pay full price for <laughs> a hard copy. Yeah. Um, and then I've made all sorts of people buy hard copies of that. Yeah, so, uh, you've made me buy it. you made Tony so, buy it. Yeah. Yeah, and made Tony run it. Indeed, best of all. absolutely. So, um, so I get to play as a samurai. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, there's there's that that's, that's, that's gone. It's available now. There's another... There's another Kickstarter which I urge our listeners to support, but only because I've got a credit in the game. I, I must admit, it's a it's a fate based game. Uh, it's got quite an interesting concept, but I haven't actually gone deeply into it, and I don't know whether it's really special. Um, it's just that on Google Plus, soon to be the late lamented Google Plus, yeah. somebody said, "What sort of name should I give to a?" Uh, a game, a fake game about plebeian rebels fighting against the aristocracy in the 17th century. And people were suggesting names all over the film. And, you know, in 17th century, you're a historian. You're an ancient Roman historian, actually. Yeah. You know nothing. I, 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 don't know lo- <laughs> 17th century. I don't know a lot about the 17th. Oh, a bit about the 17th, but medieval and Roman is more or, my bag, yeah. Does Thomas Hobbes ring a bell? No, not really. Uh, Thomas Hobbes is a British <laughs> philosopher from the 17th century who wrote about what he called Leviathan, which is the collective will of the British people. Mm. So I said this should be called Leviathan. And um, so it is. Well, it's called Leviathan Rising. Mm-hmm. Or, and um, it's, uh, uh, or Leviathan Rises, I should say. And it's a, a game, a fake game that's I've got a credit in now because I thought of the title. Well, I think I think um, what you ought to do, though, if you are now claiming credit for the title, is when you s- tell us the full title, get it right. <laughs> you know? Yes, Leviathan. Oh, well, the second one, I, I, rising something or other, up and down and right. You know, right. The bit that I invented or didn't invent, I nicked off Thomas Hobbes is Leviathan. <laughs> um, the other word, that's yeah, it's just it's uh, just it's just window dressing, isn't so it? I think word? it is rises as opposed to rising. Leviathan rises, rising. yeah, cool. But it's Leviathan rises. Uh, so by all means, check out Kickstarter and have a look at that. Um, one of the Kickstarters, though, that uh, well, no, again, something that's currently available and possibly of less interest to our fans since they've probably got it already, but I think is a great addition to the Forbidden Lands stable is a quick start yeah pack yeah pdf and i think in a way if there's one thing wrong with forbidden lands is that it didn't launch with one of those mm. um yeah i don't know i 
Yeah, I'm 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 a bit torn. I mean, I I've in my gaming gaming life, I've very rarely picked up a quick start and then in, actually in, enjoyed it because well, I think this quick start might be different because it's quite a thorough quick start. This one isn't it? There's a, quite a lot of um, stuff in it, but a lot of the quick starts I've picked up in the past have been very thin, and it really is a quick start. It just gives you the raw basics to to, to crack on and give it a try. And actually, I, I sometimes think you miss some important elements of a game if you do that. So quite often, I prefer. Yeah, I'm quite impressed with what they've managed to fit in. Yeah. Uh, tell me, uh, how many pages do you think this has in its electronic form? Well, I, I think I, I think. Take a guess. Well, it's something like 150, isn't it? 152 pages. So <laughs> that isn't very thin. Is no, it? exactly. That. So that's what I meant. I mean, I think this is one that they've that is much more thorough. It's more like a. You know, calling it a quick start is probably a bit uh, stretching it a little yeah, bit. Yeah, actually, uh, it's a bit of a misnomer because it wouldn't be a quick start. There's quite a lot to read. <laughs> um, uh, but I, what they have attempted to do is give you a bit of everything that makes the game unique. Mm. So there's some rules about, uh, you know, about hex crawling. You've got a page of map, which is not the biggest map that we've got, but but a little section of that. Funny enough, the section that you guys are adventuring in in our mm-hmm. campaign around Whaler's Hold. Cool. Uh, it's got a few random encounters, so, uh, so a, a a D twelve or two D six random encounter table as opposed to the D sixty six one. So it, it it gives you all the mechanics to try it and see whether you like it. It's got, of course, um, the basic combat rules. Uh, uh, it's got. You can't generate a character, and the biggest omission is magic. It it does have magic in it, but it only has magic as it relates to one of the characters, and it doesn't have the um, magic mishap table. So that's the biggest thing that you lose out of it. I, I guess I, it makes me wonder what they've kept in in favour of that stuff, because that, that's frankly one of the most important things about the way the magic works in this game. Is is the risk of mishap? If you if you don't have that, then the whole uh, sort of sense and aura of using magic changes because magic is is exceedingly risky. Yeah, oh, this is this is this is a, a branch of magic that doesn't have an inherent sense of risk to it that they've chosen with this particular player. Yeah. It's kind of a, a healing form, but uh, yeah, you're right. It misses out on that. So my advice to our listeners is just go and buy the full game. Just go and buy the game. Nah, you see, our listeners have already bought the full well, game. Well, exactly. But if you're trying to persuade somebody else to buy it, I think this is a worthy thing to kind of download and um, and see. And it does have... Uh, so, you know, it has the hex crawl rules. That's one of the things that it's, it's, it's done instead of the magic mishap table. It's got uh, some crits and stuff like that. So again, that takes there. It's got quite a lot on... It's really effectively got two chapters on your characters. So although it doesn't let you generate your characters, it gives you quite a lot of what makes the you know relatively standard races at first glance that you see into something special for, um, for, for, for Forbidden Lands. So there's quite a lot to read there. And there's, you know, I really liked the introductory chapter on game mastering and a big chunk of that is in there. So it would be a worthy introduction to somebody who's just thinking about picking it up. Generally, 
I'd say, I'd say the the magic mishaps is a bit of an omission, but um, but I think I can live without it. Uh, Fair it's just that whoever p- plays a magic user in your quick start version of um, of Weathertop um, is going to be pretty shocked <laughs> when you get the full rules, and then yeah. he gets um, abducted by a demon. <laughs> but after that, he'll learn. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In your second or third magic using character, although I, I guess you know, I'm I'm all for anything that gets new players into Forbidden Lands and other free league games. So if it helps get somebody through the door and start playing it, then great. That's really good. Yeah, and I guess the other thing to say is um, it's not necessarily uh, a useful thing for the people at your table. If you've got the box set and you're saying, pick this up as a sort of free player's guide, it's not actually going to be terribly useful as a free player's guide. It's more useful, I think, to GMs, although there's plenty for players to read as well. So if you, you know, if your brother wanted a player's guide, he's got to go out and buy the damn player's book. Yeah, yeah. Actually, you should have bought that for him for his birthday. He's had his birthday recently, hasn't he? He has, yeah, yeah. And did you buy him the player's book? No, you didn't, you tight sod. <laughs> I, I, I sent him a card. What would he expect? <laughs> and I, and I, right, I, other Kickstarter news. Let's get back to the world of gaming. Um Although it's something that started off as Kickstarter that was nothing to do with gaming and now has something to do with gaming. I mentioned it last week that Real Again have got a French illustrated version of Call of Cthulhu, the novella, not the game, um, currently under Kickstarter. Well, they've reached the stretch goal. That means now it's a game too. <laughs> or rather, now they're going to write a game, a Year Zero uh, engine game, which will be interesting to see uh, Zero doing horror. And what they've said very specifically is it's proper go-mad-and-die horror. It's not going to be campaign-based. Mm. It's one-offs by which you will be dead or mad. Well, that's what I mean. That's what, that's what Cthulhu is all about. You know, Cthulhu, yeah. Cthulhu is basically charting the story of your character's descent into complete and utter madness or death on the way. Very few come out of it yeah. unscathed. In one form or another. I'm not sure yet what they're going to be calling it, uh, but I think the title that's currently doing the rounds is Deep Old Ones. Right. Um, and cool. now I'm in a bit of a quandary because I had I had kickstarted just for the book. You've got to be the next level up to get the PDF of uh, the game. And I've got to work ah. out, do I want to get the PDF of the game now, a little bit ahead of everybody else, or do I want in... to wait until the inevitable Kickstarter for the Deep Old Ones? So the, that Kickstarter is still open, is it, at the moment? Yeah, that is. And yeah. how much longer is, is there to go on it? Oh, oh! Now you're asking me. Um, let, let, let me let me look at the Kickstarter website and check it out. Because I'm not particularly interested in in the book so much, um, but I would definitely be interested in a, a a Year Zero engine version of Cthulhu. So that might encourage me to pitch in in order to get right. Okay, well, to get the um, stretch goal. Hmm. Listening to what you said before, though, you said uh, I like a good book. I don't. I don't really like PDFs. So o- the stretch oh, yeah. goal here is only the PDF. Fair enough. When it comes to making a hardback uh, or uh, a physical version, I'm sure there'll be another Kickstarter for it. Yeah. But the let me tell you how much uh, there's six days to go. So, okay. listeners, if you're listening to this. Um, you might have missed it already. Well, I guess six, six, day, six days to game. go from the point of recording, which will probably mean about two or three days to go by the time it's been edited and put out. So, uh, 
And that's where I've got to decide whether my 25 or 24 pound hardback book bid is going to go up to 41 pounds with a high priest of Cthulhu level, which is the thing that will get me the PDF of the game as well. Mm. So not, I haven't got much time to decide. But you know me, I do like a bit of horror. Um, and uh, horror is one of the things that attracted us to Coriolis, is it not? It is. But just before we move on to this lovely segue that you're trying to move to, I haven't quite finished. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, interestingly, having uh, a game as a stretch goal is... Well, that's quite a stretch goal. So, I mean, what... Do we have any sense of how deep the deep old one game will go? Or is this just going to be a very shallow kind of placing, you know, a, 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 a year zero veneer on top of something else? I well, wonder. let me um, let me give you a little bit of history of the Freel Again company. Uh, you see, back in the day, Freel Again produced an art book of the work of Simon Stallenhag. And when they did an English version of that art book, they kick-started that with, as a stretch goal, a little game called Things from the Loop. Tales of the Loop. Yeah. As a PDF. Yeah. So it inspired a game that went on to win many, many <laughs> That's true, yeah. Not just a veneer on top of Coriolis or something. No, that's very so true. So I'm sure yeah, yeah. they're going to take their time over this PDF as well. It's not going to be rushed out. And... Um, you know, given given the quality of everything they've done game wise so far, I don't think it will be a, a no. Cheap it's not going to be, is it? No. Cool. No, I think it'll be truly horrific. <laughs> which is a nice segue. For, uh, <laughs> back, what we were talking sorry, about. Back to your segue, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> oh, don't you just hate it when your co-host screws up your lovely segue? So I was saying to somebody on um, a forum recently who had commented about science fiction games that are horror and then had also mentioned Coriolis and hadn't jammed those two things together. And I said, but look, you know, Coriolis is based on... And they'd even used Event Horizon as an example of what they were looking for. Mm. And I said, this is this is what Coriolis w- was inspired by. But there is a bit of a gap, isn't there, in the Coriolis rule set when it comes to horror. I think there is, yeah. And you're going to tell us what that gap is? Yes. <laughs> Let's listen to what I've got to say on horror in Coriolis. If one game is ripe for a horror critical hit dynamic, it's Coriolis. Crawling around the ancient remains of a portal builder ruin, or a derelict space hulk being stalked by something from Alien or The Thing, is an experience every player has or should go through. And the beasts bursting from the shadows all claws, fangs and mystical darkness would be enough to scare the daylights out of anyone. In the rules as written, a mystical attack, screaming fear or a banshee's freezing wail might do some stress damage to your mind points. But is it going to do 6, 7 or 8? Because to have a real impact, it needs to risk breaking you and to do that, it'll need to do a lot of damage. So why not just give the attack a crit value and have a horror crit table like that in Forbidden Lands? That all sounds well and good, but it's not quite as simple as all that. In Coriolis, you take damage to your mind points from fear or mystical attacks, 
But you also take mind point damage from normal, non-supernatural stuns. Stun guns, stun sticks and the like. You'd think it's only fair that these weapons should dish out a critical hit. But a critical hit table that reflects a real horrifying critical hit might not work so well for a normal stun. So maybe it works if you keep stuns and horror separate. So that's what I'm going to do. Not least because it's a good idea, but also because I've done that already in the stun part. In my How to Play discussion, Poisons, Explosions and Stuns, in Season 2, Episode 3, and written up on my blog, rpggods.org, on 10th of September, 2018. So, normal stuns. In that discussion, I said that each stun weapon should be given a critical value, as for usual weapons, and if you crit, you administer a stun to your target. I'd suggest the crit value should routinely be 1 for charged stun weapons and the like, as an aside, you could in theory be stunned by being whacked with a big stick, but the crit value for that kind of weapon already gives a roll on the normal physical damage crit table. It isn't easy to house roll something here, not without becoming needlessly complex, to reflect the idea of stunning somebody with a big stick rather than actually hurting them. Anyway, back to stuns. If your stun attack crits and you deliver a stun effect, the victim must roll to resist the stun using empathy dice and needing to score as many successes as sixes rolled in the original attack. If they fail the roll, the victim is stunned for the next round, at the end of which they get another resist roll with their target number reduced by one. If they resist the stun at any point, they can then operate as normal. I think that works well and is a nice and simple way to tweak the rules as written to give a usable stun mechanic. But it gets a bit more complicated with horror criticals. I mean, on the one hand, it's easy enough to do. The GM allocates a number of attack dice. You could call it, in effect, a mystic powers value, damage, and a crit value to any attack or environmental effect that can dish out mind point damage, as per any normal weapon. You could then resolve the attack in one of two ways. Either the attacker just rolls attack dice, and achieves a number of successes, or the attack could be an opposed role against the target's empathy or mystic powers skill, and then that resolves the success of the attack. Personally, I prefer the opposed role option, as it then means mystics will be better able to resist, which feels right to me. Any crits get applied in the normal way too, with the exception that you roll the crit on the Forbidden Lands horror crit table. Having looked at it, I think you can cut and paste the whole table as it is, from Forbidden Lands and into Coriolis. Easy. So for example, the Hounds of Tyrides have an attack called the Hunter's Howl, which you can see on page 329 of the book. This attack, as written, can only ever do two points of mind damage. It costs a darkness point for the GM to do it as well, and the target gets a resist roll, albeit a difficult one. So, maybe not so terrifying after all. If we applied the rules I'm proposing, we could give the hounds a mystic power score, which is effectively attack dice, to reflect the horror of the howl, depending on how horrifying you want to make it. From, say, 5, which would be pretty weak, up to 10, really bone-chilling. You run the attack, which would have a damage of 2, and a crit, I'd suggest, of 1. 
Or maybe two if you are being really kind. This now carries a real threat and a real risk that the creature's howl will drive you to your knees in terror. This also brings an interesting suggestion for two new general talents. What I'm going to call, off the top of my head, Terror, the horror equivalent of Executioner, where the attacker can swap the crit dice over, and Blood of Ice, the horror equivalent of Nine Lives, where the defender can swap the crit dice over. But what this doesn't cover is the horror effect of seeing or experiencing something terrifying. The shock of being startled by a Bayara or a Hound of Tereides. Witnessing or being the victim of torture. Coming across a horribly mutilated body. Unless, of course, we say this counts as one of the environmental effects I mentioned a moment ago. The GM would then decide the attack strength, attack damage and crit value, depending upon the circumstances, and would make the attack as I described before. So, for example, being startled by that Bayara might result in an attack of 8 dice, with damage of 2 and a crit value of 2. But if it takes place in the isolated dark and eerie decks of a ruined ship, that might become 10 attack dice and a crit of 1. Witnessing torture might start with an attack of 7 and a crit of 2, with the numbers going up or down if the victim is a close friend or someone you hate. And stumbling across a mutilated body might be an attack of 5, and a crit of two. So to summarize, give your stun and horror attacks three things, attack dice, a damage score, and a crit value, as per every other weapon in Coriolis. If you crit with a traditional stun weapon, your target gets to resist, but if they fail, they're stunned. If you crit with a horror attack or environmental effect, you roll on the horror crit table and take your chances. Well, that all makes a lot of sense, David. Um, did you just call me David? I did call you David. Why? Yeah. You're, about, you're about to tell me off, aren't you? Well, uh, no, um, yeah. <laughs> I'm, only get called... I'm about to tell you off, David. Because, I only uh, get called this David is your I've been told off. Yeah. And you haven't done a good enough job. You've been copying somebody else's work. You said you could copy and, copy and paste that table uh, straight out of Forbidden Lands into Coriolis. I'm going to quiz that because... I happen to have here a copy of Forbidden Lands Game Master's... Uh, sorry, Player's, Player's Handbook. Player's Handbook. Player's Handbook. Yeah. Uh, and with the lovely fabric bookmark that was in itself a stretch goal, um, <laughs> I have marked uh, page 199, that number being in the skull, which seems to fit critical injuries horror. And, you know, I read through those thinking, well, you know, surely fantastic horror isn't going to fit in um, in Coriolis quite as well as you imagine. Actually, it does. Generally, it's a pretty good fit. I mean, there's things um, 45 to, sorry, 44 to 45, for example, become a drunkard. I think I might change that for opor addict in Coriolis. And so instead of drink wine or mead every day or suffer one point of damage to agility. Yeah, I think, I mean, when I when I say you can pretty much cut and paste it, you can cut and paste the principles, you know, you, you, I mean, that drunkard, yeah. that drunkard one could be, you know, it could be, you have to do something. And like you say, it could be opor, it could be alcohol, it could be something else that basically steadies your hand every day. Yes. Yeah, no, I, I, I can see that. It's low down in the table, though, that I'm, um, uh, I want to quiz you on. Okay. Uh, because uh, there's a couple about nightmares uh, 
keeping you awake and preventing you from sleeping yeah. or indeed uh, becoming nocturnal so you can only sleep during the light part of the day. Now, of course, the whole sleep mechanic has no bearing at all in Coriolis. No, that's true. So we'd have to do a little bit of work there to, to see what is the mechanical effect of mm. nightmares and losing sleep. Is there, you know, do you get a bit of mind damage if you don't get sleep or something? Yeah, I think that's fair enough. Um, I think you have taken a very literal approach to my comment about lifting the the table into Coriolis. Um, so I, I think I when I looked at the table, I looked much more. David, when I set you this homework, David, <laughs> I would I would say I would say I would say Matthew, but actually that makes no difference because everyone else except me calls you Matthew. Yeah. That's what I prefer to be. <laughs> Matt. When I sent you this homework, I was expecting a beautifully custom-made table for Coriolis. That's what would have got you an A star, or <laughs> as we say nowadays in the modern uh, evaluation system at school, a nine. Mm. Uh, apparently, that's a good. Apparently, uh, I don't yeah. understand it. Um, <sighs> anyway, uh, yes. A- anyway, uh, no, I wasn't. Uh, it's it's good enough homework. You get at least a B. I just wanted to bring <laughs> Fuck up. Fuck off. It's not quite a simple <laughs> at least a B. So I, I was looking more down the, the trauma column rather than the effect during healing column. So I think the the, the, the principle yeah. of getting white hair as a result of it, being anxious as a result of it, you know, which could give you minus one to rolls that relate to wits, which is fine. Sullen, minus one to rolls for empathy, I think, which is fine. I, I get the nightmares and the nocturnal one. Um, I, I mean, the nightmares one could just give you or both of them actually if you're if you're awake at night if you if you haven't slept you could just get a minus one on your rolls for the following day so it takes it slightly worse than the lower the lower trauma that gives you minus one to a wits or an empathy um nightmares might give you minus one to you know maybe both wits and empathy and nocturnal might give you minus one to the lot to all your stats maybe to everything to everything you roll but i but i felt the idea of actually you know your character is now an insomniac. That you know, there's a role playing opportunity there, which I think is a really good one. Um, nightmares. A lot of games have sort of flashbacks or nightmares as a uh, as an anti talent. You know, as a as a burden. Yeah. So again, it gives you that kind of thing. It could easily. I'm not sure. I don't think I said this in the piece, but it could easily uh, off that table give you a new character problem. And rather than being nocturnal for two d six weeks. Because in Coriolis, if you jump in a ship and fly somewhere, that's, you know, your 2D6 weeks is... Um, 2D6 weeks? Yes, you'll be covered days. by the time you get anywhere at yeah, all. Yeah, so it's kind of irrelevant until, you know, except for that, that moment initially where, you, you know, where it happens. So it could actually be, you roll nocturnal, and rather than the healing time being 2D6 weeks, the, the, the effect in play is you have to create a new character problem that is based on insomnia or being nocturnal so which I think yeah. would work quite well for Coriolis which then um, the uh, GM could um, could use darkness points to invoke exactly at any point when you want to yeah yeah absolutely so I think that was so I, I take I take your point that is that's fair enough I, I didn't didn't read deeply into the, the the description of the effect so much I didn't worry about that it's more <laughs> the, the philosophy behind having a character who's now got nightmares was 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 perhaps more of what I was thinking about Excellent. Well, um, don't let it happen again, <laughs> uh, Master Seamark. Uh. Um, 
dear. Uh, it's hard work with you sometimes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I just love being chicha. Uh, no, um, yeah, yeah cool. but generally actually very good. Uh, it's all very good ideas. Um, nice way of solving that whole mind point problem. Mm. Although I am... Um, I, I sometimes, you know, we build quite well-rounded characters. I wonder whether there are power gamers out there that have given their, um, you know, physical tank type character about four mind points by stripping the mental uh, abilities down to the barest uh, minimum so that they can be very good at fighting. And they would get entirely screwed by this, wouldn't they? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't fun. it? So it's, you know, it, it's like having um, potentially... Arnold Schwarzenegger in Predator going up, seeing the Predator and going and running, um, which wouldn't have made for a very good film. <laughs> but actually, yeah, I think that's a really good point. So having a well-rounded, a well-rounded personality in your character, well-rounded stats is, is going to be valuable. And I, I am, I mean, in hindsight, looking at this, I'm really surprised that it didn't occur to Free League to put in a horror critical table in... No, in absolutely. In the first yeah. place, because the whole yeah. the whole stress and mind point idea, and it being a a second pool of of resource in your character that you can be damaged through, is a great one. I love it. It's really good. Um, the idea of being broken rather than killed when you hit zero is excellent. It's a, it's a, such a really good uh, innovation in the game. But yeah, you've got critical injuries on the one hand, but then actually your mind points and stress becomes almost irrelevant because we had the conversation before about stuns um, mm. where if you want to stun somebody, put them down in one go, you're probably better off trying to break them on their hit points because most characters have got you know, the ability to do quite a lot of damage potentially. Um, you're better off doing that than trying to do six or seven mind point damage, stress damage in one blow because you're never going to do it. So... You're never going to knock somebody out in one blow on mind points unless you use my suggestions for rulings around stuns. So I quite like them. Yeah. I'm good. I'm using them in my game. Jolly good. Cool. I'll use them in my game too. <sighs> your disadvantage. Oh, <laughs> no, if you're going to call me Master Seamark and you're going to like give me a B for my homework, I'm going to I'm going to claim copyright on this and you can't use it in your game when I'm playing. <laughs> All right. Well, um it's not just me marking your work. It's uh Craig Atkins as well who's just uh, messaged us on Google Plus while you were talking to point out that uh, as per our recent conversation in the last episode about whether weapons degrade um, when you roll a one at any point or only when you push the roll. You know, we'd said, uh, obviously they do in Forbidden Lands, but I wasn't sure about Mutant Year Zero. Yeah. He says it's the same in Mutant Year Zero as well. So only one only counts when you push the roll, not before then. But he does say, okay. apart from that, the Grindbone Tournament sounds like a great success. Well done. Cool. So um, you can pat yourself on the back as well uh, about running that so I just uh, that just came in while we were talking you might have heard my device go beep oh no I didn't but okay um, cool excellent this is this is like uh, we're, we're becoming a bit like our mate Doug aren't we on Victory Condition Gaming we're getting people you know yeah come on come on people so interesting us messages even though you don't know that we're recording right now <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, do send us your feedback. Yes, um, absolutely. Uh, in fact, uh, this might be a good time to talk about a bit of feedback and a question that we got from one of our listeners who emailed us on coriolis at fictionsuit.org, our email address, uh, for the time being at least. Um, <laughs> More on that anon. And uh, uh, he said, I have only recently discovered your podcasts and now they are my accompanying listening material. This is, uh, I should say, this is Kevin from Glasgow. Uh, they, they are my accompanying listening material while painting minis. I am really enjoying the chats and discussions you have, so much so that it has encouraged me to order the Coriolis rules. Ooh, get in there. Which I Excellent. Think yeah, so where's our commission, Free League? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's really good. I mean, we, uh, I've always imagined that people come to us having bought Coriolis and then gone, oh, what can I find out about Coriolis online and discovered the podcast? But here's someone that discovered us first, uh, I guess probably via Forbidden Lands, and has now rushed out to get Coriolis yeah. as well. So that's great news. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Kevin. Yes, thanks, um, Kevin. That was brilliant. Uh, uh, a small request is that I got the Forbidden Land rules as well and loved the Ravenland's actual play. Well, that's good. We hope to get back to that quite shortly. We'll record sometime in the next few weeks. Um, I was wondering what you rolled for the encounters for Grindbone. Is this to be reserved for a future podcast? I'll exercise a degree of patience. Hmm. Actually, I was a bit flummoxed by that question because I thought, well, we didn't have any encounters in the Grindbone tournament. Is that what he'd been listening to? And so actually I emailed him back and said, um, is that what you're talking about? And if so, there were no encounters. We just pitted players against <laughs> each other. But no, he referred back to what we were talking about when we obviously were discussing the game that we failed to record. And we, we, it was about we failed the... to record. I failed to record. Well, no, Sound engineer it. Matt. It just, <laughs> it just sounded terrible. Mm. That's, that's what I'm saying. It went through the wrong mic. Sounded terrible. Um, so, yeah, Maya culpa on that one. But he was asking about um, about that encounter because I guess he's he's gone through the book and he didn't see anybody from Grindbone being described in the encounters yes in, yeah, and, yeah, in the book. and you're talking about the encounter where the 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 three guys tried to sneak up on our camp and uh steal our food yes those ones there random ran, randomly generated wasn't it that one that was a randomly generated one and it was uh encounter 12 in the table mm-hmm. which is called the hungry robbers and um so it and really, the extrapolation um, of them having come from Grindbone was because you didn't kill them straight away. You got into conversation. You asked where they were coming from, why they were hungry. I'd been reading up about Grindbone just in case you went the wrong direction um, before the adventure. So Grindbone was in my head. So it's the first story excuse I could think of them. But, you know, it worked quite well. Um you know, that's what you get for making stuff up on... On the fly. On the fly, as it were. Uh, so, thank you, Kevin. That's the answer. And anybody else that was wondering about uh, an encounter with escaped slaves, they were actually the hungry robbers. I just turned them into escaped slaves. But um, it brings me to my essay. Well, actually, I'm just going to say a little bit about that encounter first. Because... Um, okay, by all means. Yeah, a totally random encounter... 
rolled off the table, as you say, what, number 12 or whatever it was, um, Hungry Robbers, which turned out to be Hungry Escaped Slaves. Um, totally random, just thrown in, resulted in about two hours of heart-rending debate between me and uh, the rest of the team about what to do with them. And that was actually one of the best yeah. best parts of the weekend, <laughs> where we, we bounced from, we ought to just kill them all, or we ought to take them back to Grindbone and, and get a reward, to um, uh, we could let we could let one of them go and kill two of them, or we could keep some of them as slaves for, for ourselves. Uh, and in the end, we ended up being quite nice to them, released two of them, and one of them agreed to join us as, uh, as effectively my character's squire, really. Um, uh, but it was brilliant. It's really good. And all of it came from one roll of the dice and, uh, you know, interesting bit of, bit of role-playing and an interesting bit of GMing. It was really good. Really, really good. Yeah, um, and... It does have bearing as well on what I'm about to say, because I explain in this essay how we cut things short because we'd spent two hours doing that beforehand. <laughs> well, don't go into those details. But what I love about that play is it really defines your characters. You guys were working out in conversation between each other. Who am I? Who are we? Mm. What sort of people are our characters? Yeah. And through play your characters have developed and become something more than what you rolled up through the Legends and Adventures. Yeah, very much so, yeah. I think also... So, and that's... Yeah, go on. Well, surely that's what role-playing's about, isn't it? At the well, end of exactly, the day. completely. Moving on to, to to our next piece, though, talking, you talking about the, the, the your random uh, adventures generation. Before you get into that, I just want to say that I've... I think from... from Back in the day, years and years ago, I'd always been uh, less than impressed with D&D uh, random encounters. And after a while, as a D&D GM, I never used them. D&D GM? DM, surely. Um, I never used them because they just seemed like a waste of time. Forbidden Lands has reintroduced to me, and the way you've run it and the way it's been run, uh, and the way it's worked, has reintroduced to me the joy of randomness, um, which I think, you know, we can talk about a bit more in a minute. But um, I just wanted to say, you know, for me, as somebody who was totally dead set against random randomness in games in this like, in this way, Forbidden Lands has, has, has been a bit of a revelation. I've been very pleased about it. But um, enough of me blathering on about that. Let's hear from you all about random adventure sites. Some GMs may be wary of random encounter tables, worried that they will throw up something that makes no sense within the developing story. I hope this shared experience will convince you to try creating a story entirely at random. It's what I did last November, which was an emergency situation. I had not been planning to run Forbidden Lands for a while, but after our one-off, which we released last year as the Ravenland Tales at your play, the party wanted to continue. And more than that, they wanted me to run an extra game at our gaming retreat. At first, I thought I could simply use a Raven's Purge adventure, but the party had already decided to head to the ruins of Whaler's Hold, and I didn't think any of the published adventures really fitted that place. Of course, my first error had been that I had not fed the party any legends, which, maybe, would have tempted them to one of the published adventures. 
Now they were headed to somewhere I hadn't planned, so I needed to work out what they would find. Still feeling the chagrin of not having given them a legend or two, I started with the legend's generator to see what it might say about Whaler's Hold. I turned to page 26 and started rolling dice. A long time ago, 32, during the Alder Wars, there was a 44, beautiful, druid. 21. I immediately decided it was an elven druid who sought 33, an enemy. Hmm. Who, I wonder? Because of 24, a promise. Made to a dwarf, I thought, given that once Whaler's Hold was a dwarven city, and travelled to... I chose all of the following, as I knew where they were going, and where they had got to last time they played. A hill, a day's march away, in the ruins northeast. And the legend goes she... 24 again, was never seen again. And that there is... 65. An elven ruby. Which is cool, because my druid is an elf, and this all fits. But also... 24 again! A cruel... Oh, 66. Roll again. Just one dice. Just one. A demon. Aha! The enemy my elven druid was searching for. So, a demon is my big bad. I went straight to the demon section of the Game Master's Guide to create one, but I'm not going to tell you about that as my players have not yet met it, and they, especially my co-host Dave, might listen to this. Instead, let's move to the village. I had decided, given the size of the ruins on the map, to make two adventure sites. I rolled the d6 twice and discovered that they would be a village among the ruins and a dungeon. I must admit I had hoped for a castle, but rather than ignore the rolls, which I could have done, I decided to run with it and see what developed. I started by rolling a d6 to see what type, how large the settlement is. A 6. The village in the ruins of Whaler's Hold is large. It was populated 43 during the Blood Mist. It's also worth noting here that during the Blood Mist is the most common result in this table, which gives me an insight into how the authors envision the world. Very few of the settlements that existed before the Blood Mist survived the demon invasion. The rule of the village is a 54 stern... Oh, 43. There is no ruler. It must be the people of the village who are stern. The village problem is... Double one. Nightwalks. Aha. Probably because of that demon the legend refers to. It's famous for... 56. Worshipping demons. Aha. The villagers worship the demon in the legend. No wonder the nightwalks prowl around. The village oddity is... Hmm, 14. An incomprehensible accent. I must get that from communing with the demon. Now, I note here there is nothing to help you choose a kin, 
The assumption must be that villages are human, I guess, or maybe I should refer to the map on page 46? Anyhow, I selected Alderlanders. The village generator includes between 0 and 11 institutions. Larger villages get 1d6 plus 5, which for me was 8. They included two taverns, one inn, they drink a lot here, a mill, stables, a smith, trading post. Aha, I thought, this is one that buys stuff people manage to find in the ruins. And a militia. Quite how the militia is organised, given no system of civic government, I'm not sure. I imagine them as a sort of neighbourhood warg watch. Now here, I think I made a mistake. You can get some colourful detail for your inn, but I used the same tables for the taverns too. The first had barrels instead of chairs, planks instead of tables, 15, served stewed turnips, 24, and was frequented by an old war veteran, 37. I was curious about this. Surely the blood mist prevented most wars for the last 300 years. It was called the Happy Dog. The second, the Old Boar Tavern, was almost exactly the same. But instead of the modest furniture, it had a grumpy owner, 47. The place our adventurers actually went to, though, was the inn. Having had two places that randomly served stewed parsnips, I just assumed that the village only grew parsnips, so the last place served that too. I did roll 18 for its special guest, and that turned out to be a scarred treasure hunter. I had a name for him already, Winchcliffe, and thought that would be the person who offered the location of the dungeon to the party in return for a cut of what they found, having been scarred by whatever defended it. The inn's oddity, 63, was a birthday party, which I didn't actually use when we played. The journey to Whaler's Hold had taken enough playtime, and I thought I would reserve it for the next session. The inn's name was good, though. 65 and 41. The Boisterous Girl. Next, the dungeon. It is... An average dungeon, with... Nine rooms. It's a... 61. Tomb. Built by dwarves. I didn't roll for this, as Whaler's Hold was a dwarven city. Neither did I roll for its history. I was having an idea. It's a tomb for the elven druid from the legend, I thought. Built by her dwarven lover, to whom she had made the promise, or... Maybe it's his tomb. He was killed by the demon and she came to avenge him. Yes, that's it. I did roll for the current inhabitants, though, and got a 46. Nightwalks. That fits with nightwalks being a problem for a village. This is ob obviously their lair. Is the demon trapped in the dungeon by the nightwalks, I wondered? But if it was, how do the villagers get to worship it? Still, I did think then that our heroes might discover the demon as a big bad in the dungeon. That's not how it panned out in the end, though. The entrance to the dungeon is... 26. Down a hole. Right. 
So, the scarred treasure hunter dug the hole. It's not the proper entrance to the tomb. It's fresh. There may even be a rope dangling down. In my head, I was already thinking he might have left one or two dead companions down there. I won't take you through all the rolls for the rooms. The hole led down through the ceiling of a corridor, at one end of which was a room with a creature, which I decided was a night walk, and a valuable silver altar. This was, it would turn out, the most valuable treasure in the whole dungeon, in the likely first room the party would explore. At the other end of the corridor was a stairway, a roll of six on the random room chart, which I rolled four times in a row. So it's a very long, deep, spiral staircase. And that left only three more rooms in my dungeon. Thankfully, they were all actual rooms. Well, two rooms and a hall, not more staircase. But I was worried that this dungeon would not be big enough. Two of the rooms had multiple doors, though. One had two, one blocked and one trapped. I had the body of the scarred treasure hunter's companion in this one to give my players a clue. The other had three doors. I made one of these connect to the hall, but decided that I could extend the dungeon through the other two in play by rolling the dice as the players explored. To do that, though, they would have to defeat the two night walls that I put in that room. Actually, I should be honest. I wrote X question mark night walks. I'd decide how many exactly when I saw the challenge that the one upstairs gave the players. The hall had no items or traps in it, just a creature. I rolled a 37. Undead. Not good enough. By now I had a story in my head about the elf who came to avenge the death of the dwarf and was cursed by the demon that killed him and now inhabited his tomb. I imagined the elf dancing for centuries with the cadaver of her dwarven lover, and that's what the players found. As it turns out, by this time we were playing late into the night, so I had no need to extend the dungeon through those doors. Indeed, I edited one encounter out. The players were meant to discover the demon in that hall too, watching the cursed elf dance, but I decided the elf was threat enough for my players' injured characters. The demon was elsewhere. Perhaps they'll meet it next time we play. Well, uh, as you were saying before we listened to that, yeah, I, 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 I think you, like me, like I imagine most gamers of our generation, sort of look a bit askance at random encounter tables because they just get in the way of the adventure that I've created which I want to get you to yeah um and I think there's a thing here which is by doing these random uh, by creating I, I've created this random adventure before before play it was just a uh, in a way it's sort of um, um a way of getting the creative juices flowing but it could have been done in play I think I prepared to to extend it in play if necessary. Luckily, your two hours talking about <laughs> your escape slaves from Grindbird made sure that wasn't a wasn't an issue. But in a way, that dice rolling makes me just as much of a player as you. I I don't know what the story is. I'm discovering the story just as you're discovering the story as we play it out together. Mm. 
Yeah. I mean, how do you think it would have felt if you had been doing all those roles? Because there are quite a lot of roles to generate these things. Um, how, how would you have felt if you were doing that at the table with us there? Yeah. Well, how well do you um, think that would run as a gaming experience? I think I wouldn't do the random legend generation at the table. Yeah. I don't think I'd have made all of those roles. I think I'd have made a lot more up. Yeah, yeah. You know, there were some circumstances where I said, I'm not going to roll for this. I just know what's going to happen. But I think some of them, like the the random dungeon one, you know, if I'd rolled in front of you six, four times in a row, uh, as I'm describing the, the staircase going down, <laughs> yeah. then we'd have all had a good laugh over that as we watched that happen. I think there is a bit of a danger of... Um, uh, let's say a demon appearing and then oh no I've got to roll a random demon up uh, that would then take a bunch of time yeah. so I'm not sure whether I would have done that but I think um, I think I could have fudged it in places mm. made some roles where I was really stuck about where you want to go and um, and then be inspired by what came up Yeah, I mean with these roles for a random adventure there was quite a lot of consistency Night Wars came up randomly twice on the dice demons came up randomly a couple of times yeah. on the dice so um so that's what helped me think well this is what this story is about yeah. on the fly but it's interesting i mean the reason I, but the reason I, I think i could have sorry the reason no, yeah, just the reason i ask is um mutant year zero has a very similar um has a very similar principle behind it in that uh, you know i think it wants you to as a GM to be rolling up the zones as the characters are are exploring them, and I I never did that. Uh, I never did that at the table because I felt that that would just all be a bit too cumbersome and a bit too slow for the game. So I never tried it. So maybe I should have bitten the bullet and given it a try and see how it worked. But I always worked out roughly where they were talking of going. Um, I would then before the game pre-generate each of the zones that they might end up getting to and then let, let it play out from there but it, it did feel that it ran the risk and i th- i think there's a way that forbidden lands might have moved changed it slightly there there was it felt to me there was a risk of you go to a zone you roll the zone it's got a bit of radiation it's got a bit of something or other you've got bad guys in it you see the bad guys or you don't see the bad guys you avoid them or you fight them and then you move on to the next zone and it felt it could very quickly become quite clunky in in doing that in mm. forbidden lands and i think kind of thinking about it they probably did do some of this in mutant year zero as well in forbidden lands you've got a lot of zone sites that you can pick from that they can reach and they can get to and you've got the random generation for things like uh dungeons and castles and stuff which Mutant Year Zero doesn't doesn't really have. Although there are quite a lot of zone adventure sites that they've put out for Mutant Year Zero. But I found myself naturally falling more back onto the, here's the scenario, here's what the, you know, the thrust of this particular scenario will be, and here are the zones they might go through it. And I'd do the zones randomly, but I'd have a thrust of the game in mind. But I wouldn't do the randomness, yeah. I wouldn't do the randomness at the table. Because I thought that was bound to be too too cumbersome. Yeah, we ought to try. I'm uh, so I've got a little bit of um, the scenario that you didn't do um, 
that we'll we'll play through next time and i'm hoping to give you some um a, a legend that will direct you to one of the pre-published sites right okay next time as well so i'm not going to be doing a particularly random one next time but i'd like to give it another go maybe uh in the maybe the one after that who can tell yeah I mean, one other thing I would say uh, is... Of actually that, doing it randomly at the yeah. table to see how it goes. I mean, one thing I would say is I didn't know, I couldn't tell that the game that you'd played out for us on that occasion was randomly generated. So it got no sense of any, you know, of it being a bit clunky or not really fitting or feeling like all the elements were just random generation ideas that were then chucked together and kind of made to work. Mm-hmm. It played out really well. And listening to your piece there, it's clear that there is still quite a lot of creative GMing going on in bringing together these ideas into, you know, the the ultimate sort of um, conclusion of it, which was, you know, this this elf, this cursed elf who's dancing, you know, with the body of her dwarven lover. And it, it makes it into a very kind of sad love story. Yeah, which is, which I, is great. that's what I'm really, I'm really interested to know whether that's what would have come up in play or would I have made commitments to story elements earlier on in the rolling that meant I couldn't retcon it when I realized oh wouldn't it be great if there's an <laughs> yeah. lover yeah. you know I you know I talked I talked in the essay about how I was thinking uh, I'd kind of got it the other way around in the uh, the elf was dead and the dwarf was the zombie and I, I think I'd um, I think I'd been thinking along those lines and I went no no it's the other way around it's the dwarf that's dead and the elf that <laughs> That's the undead, and um, uh, so that that moment, if I'd committed to the dwarf in play, would it have been such a good story? Yeah, yeah. I thought I, don't I thought it was it was excellent. It was a really good, a really good game, and it you know it it felt like you'd had you know you were you you know a bit of genius story storytelling, but no, actually, it was just luck. <laughs> Luck and genius. Uh, but no, I do think, I mean, what I was wanting to demonstrate is almost that I think people think, oh, I can't think quickly enough on the fly to do this in play. And actually, I think, although I didn't do it in play, I think you can. As I said before, right at the head of the program when we were talking about this, the players have to react to random things that they didn't plan beforehand. Yeah. And as a GM, you're a player. And if you can react... Uh, mostly by hitting things with a sword, I guess. Um, if you can react to random things when you're a player, you can react to them when you're mm. the GM. I think also... So, you know, give it a go. A, a, good, a good GM, and I, you know, or a GM with a little bit of imagination, can almost certainly run a pretty good game completely off the top of their head. Uh, or you, you give a, a, a premise, you put the players in a situation... And that's all you do. You then let let the game play yeah. itself out. So you have to react as you go along to to how the players are reacting to the situation you've put them in, and you've put them into that situation, wanting to let them explore it and work out how it plays out, rather than having a an answer already pre prepared in your mind. And I guess most GMs have done that at some time or another. And so you know, like you say, rec- not reckoning, but um, as you say putting together a scenario that hangs together and that grabbing an opportunity in-game that comes to, to you as a GM for a bit of tension or, or, or moving the story in an interesting way. I mean, I think we all do that. You know, GMing isn't just kind of reading out of the book. 
you know, it's every game that I've run, I guess, and probably every game that just about every GM has run, uh, hasn't uh, you know, stuck to the plan all the way through. Hasn't gone according. Yeah. You know, Actually, you saying that, it makes me think that really, I've done a lot more prep for the Coriolis game we played the same weekend, but I actually did a lot more stuff on the fly in game with that game because you guys did so well and didn't do what I expected you to do. Yeah. And so actually I was making a lot more of that up than I made up of, of this game. Yeah. And maybe if I'd had some random tables to help, you know, to help inspire me with the making up, that might've been even better in play. Who can tell? Yeah. Interesting though. And I, I am loving the, the randomness in, in Forbidden Lands. It's, uh, it, it, it's, it's all yeah. adding to the, to the, to the feel uh, of the game. It's really good. Smashing. So you don't want me to spurn the random encounter tables quite yet? Not in, not in the least, no. Absolutely. I mean, it might be that deeper into the adventure, when you're not just wandering around trying to find out what you're doing, and you start getting into a, a real sort of mission that you guys give yourselves, it might be that we actually do drop the random encounter tables because, you, you know, that will just distract you from the thing you want to do. Yeah, but, potentially. Um, yeah. I think it's interesting, actually. I'm... <laughs> This is a real, real tangential digression. Um, but I think if you ran every single game randomly, it would be like a, a TV series that each episode is different. There's no, there's no connecting story. And actually, I quite, mm. I quite like that in a lot of things. And I'm, 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 I'm currently watching Star Trek Enterprise, and I'm on season three. And season one and two are very much like that. Each episode is a standalone. Um, doesn't really there isn't really an overarching story although there is a bit but not it's not it hasn't become one big story being told in 20 episodes season three is becoming much more like that they've got there's a big season arc that they're following it's fine i'm enjoying it but it it is different it does give a different feel so i think yes there, there, there maybe is a bit of gm you know jiggery pokery whereby you you maintain your overarching story campaign arc whilst weaving in what the dice tell you you ought to weave in so i think that that's entirely doable yeah 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 i think we've probably said enough about that yeah so tell me though about your campaign your pre-played uh, not random uh, spectral corsair campaign <laughs> What's been going on in that one? Well, I'm thinking, um, I'm not 100% certain that last time I spoke about the episode with the drones. Or did I? Can you remember? Oh, God. Now you're actually making me admit that I kind of just switch off when you do <laughs> I always suspected. Um, I always um, So, But anyway, well, that's a good example of a scenario where they were they picked up uh, some cargo... There were some drones in it. One of the drones was, or at least one of the drones was going to go a bit wild and try and start damaging their ship. And that was the premise of the game. And then I ran the whole game based on that premise, depending on what, what they chose to do. But anyway, they survived that. So I, I'll assume that I've talked about it. Um, but they were going to the Nagar system where they had a bit of time to wait. So if you remember, um, Norsa there, uh, Nakatra has lost his arm. And in Sadal, they found a clinic that is regrowing an arm for him, which is going to take about a month. So they had a month to uh, to kill. So they decided to pick up a load of a load of gear, uh, a load of cargo, and then travel to the Nagar system with it. 
Now, with the drones, uh, they lost just about all of their cargo. Not all of it, but most of it. And the ship was quite badly damaged. So after the episode with the drones, they limped slowly towards a planet called Thrun in the Nagar system. Um, they had managed to retrieve some of their cargo, and they made about 30,000 burr off what they had left. But that meant that the trip was a, was a bit of a loss. But once in port on Thrun, yeah. um, uh, they, they set about repairing their ship. And uh, next time, I'm going to talk a little bit about ship repairs in Coriolis. Because if you follow the rules as they are, you make a tech roll and you use one set of spares, which is going to cost you 200 burr. And lo and behold, your module that costs 55 grand to put in is no longer destroyed. Hurrah! That just doesn't seem right for me. So next time, right. I'm going to talk a little bit about what I've done and what I did in this game about trying to make that a bit more, a bit more challenging. But they've they've started to repair their ship. Um, but on the first day in port, they received a visit from an ornately dressed and very elegant man who said, uh, "I am Sima Subadar, and I'm here to collect the shipment of timber you've brought for me." Well, they have no timber because they lost it all in the explosion in the cargo bay when the drones were running havoc around the ship. Subadar was obviously not very happy about this, and he demanded not only did they uh, repay the money that had been paid up front, which was 7,500 burr, but also that they pay him 7,500 burr compensation for, for, loss, for compensation. losses. Compensation, yeah. Hanbal, for, for Hanbal, that was too much. Um, his counteroffer of 1,000 burr was taken as an insult, and the ship was impounded immediately. Uh, as it turned out, House Subadar um, controls ports and customs on Thrun. But Subadar was not an unreasonable man, and he had offered to them, hinted to them, there might be another way they could compensate him. The planet Thrun has three moons, uh, the so-called um, harem moons, where the beautiful young women and men of each house are raised and trained, ready to be chosen as wives or husbands and consorts at the annual harem bazaar that they hold on one of the three moons. Mm. The first moon, Thrun Mabar, is home to the, the compounds of a number of big houses, including House Subadar. The second, a moon called Dorka, is the home uh, to, to Subadar's main rival family, called Bintulu. Uh, and the third planet, the third moon, is Taklaban, which is where they hold the bazaar every, every year. Seema explained that this year they'd received word that the Crown Prince of Sadal himself was coming to attend the bazaar and would be choosing a new wife for his, har- his own personal royal harem. The woman who was sure to be selected was House Subadar's most wonderful offering, a woman called Pernalulu. And there was only one thing that could prevent this, and that was a young Bintulu girl called Kaiguna. And rumour had it that Kaiguna's beauty was even greater than Pernalulu's. But if Kaiguna somehow missed the bazaar, she'd have to wait until next year for selection. So the mission was quite clear. Make sure that she doesn't actually make the bazaar Turn up. in order to be chosen. <laughs> um, and Seema was, was very clear. She doesn't need to be hurt. Um, in fact, she don't want her to be hurt. She just needs to miss the event. And if they, just if they succeed, then he would, he would not only consider their debt paid in full, but how Subadar would owe them a great debt of gratitude. And naturally so. Getting one of their women, one of their girls into the the royal harem of the heir to Sadal is pretty pretty good in terms of uh, social advancement. So they decided that this seemed like a good proposition. 
um, their plan was to go to the Bintulu compound and pretend to be representatives of a powerful, interested party to review the men and women uh, of the renowned House Bintulu before the bazaar itself and then make recommendations to their master who was uh, to remain anonymous. Abdelakar, because he is the, the negotiator and has got some exquisite clothing, um, he would play the role of the chief advisor and Hanbal and Norsa would go along as his personal entourage to, to help him. Once there, they were going to administer a potion that would make Kaiguna fall ill and prevent her from getting to the bazaar. She would only be ill for a few days, um, but that would be enough to stop her going. And in coming to this plan, they'd, they'd had a huge stroke of fortune, um, otherwise known as a friend in every port, uh, general talent, group talent, um, <laughs> which is exceedingly powerful. Just as, just as an aside, a friend in every port actually means a friend in every port, because now they've worked out what this talent can do. When they get somewhere and they start, they need something, they just immediately pull out the talent, which is great. Um, it's good, good play. But how how often are they going to find somebody they know well enough every time they go somewhere? <laughs> it, yeah, I think there is a risk of over overdoing it a bit. But it might be more for me as a GM to be, uh, I don't know, like shaving the edges off it somehow by making it a bit. Yeah, I don't know. What if uh, so? Uh... It's quite good fun to say I know somebody here. You used it quite effectively in my campaign. Yep. I don't mind if they've got a friend in every port across the universe, but what happens when they go back to a planet where we've already defined the friend they've got in that port? Yeah. So, you know, if uh, you guys um, hmm. met a mercenary on um, uh, the planet Paradise... Uh, let's say next time you're back on Paradise and your engines have blown up or something and you need a mechanic, would I let you use friend in every port there? Or would I say, oh, no, 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 you have got a friend here, but and it's, it's this person. Yeah, who isn't a mechanic. That's a really interesting point because kind of the way I've played it and I, the way I felt it as a player when we used that talent in your game was that after that scenario, here we now had a generally positive, friendly NPC that we could talk to but who you could then play as you saw fit then with the talent itself uh, allows you to find somebody who for that scenario is going to be helping you and on your side isn't going to betray yeah. you um but that doesn't mean that next time you meet that guy that he might be he might betray yes. you that time but your suggestion there that actually having having burned that talent on that planet or in that system that is your friend in that system for good you can't find another one which is an interesting take. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how the designers thought to play it. No, but, um... but it, yeah, but it's interesting. I, I think, I think, obviously, I can feel it differently as a GM in this campaign because we play a lot more frequently than we do with you in Coriolis. Um, yeah, it comes up a lot more, and now it, because it because yes. it because it comes up a lot. <laughs> it only more. comes up once a year with you guys. Yeah, exactly. I mean, because it comes up a lot more, they've now got in their minds actually yeah this is a really useful thing and we want to use it um so they're looking for an opportunity to use it rather than uh you know it 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 being kind of pulled out at the last moment if everything else has failed kind of the first option yeah. rather than the last um but anyway back to the story so abdelakar having uh, having used this this talent happened across an old friend and a former co-worker um with jubal uh, who was a poisoner called arib 
and uh, Ariba could help them, but with the time they had left available, because naturally enough the next bazaar was only a few days away, he couldn't be exactly sure what his concoction would do. Hanbel told him, make it more potent rather than less, if you can't be sure. Potentially a risky strategy to take, but that's, that's, that's the way they went. So they eventually arrived on the moon, Dorkar, um, where they were going to uh, find the Bintulu compound. And they were welcomed with a number of other prospective buyers. Um, and they were led through the compound and into the main tent. And it was here that they were presented with Kaiguna and all the other Bintulu harem men and women. Abdelikar immediately made for Kaiguna, uh, being the leader of their group, uh, but screwed up his role so badly, uh, she repelled his clumsy attempt to ingratiate himself. Handel stepped in to try, um, and was very surprised when she seemed to actually like his no-nonsense and man-of-the-people approach. And eventually, Handel convinced her to take a sip from, the, his, from his drink, but not before he'd had to take a sip himself. Now, prior to this, he'd put the poison vial that he had in it. So he knew he was taking a risk here that he might himself be become ill in the same way that, that Kaiguna would. But Kaiguna took a drink, you know, as, as, as uh, Hanbal had done, and almost immediately she began to retch, the poison taking effect very, very quickly indeed. Hanbal himself wasn't feeling well, but uh, he wasn't as bad as Kaiguna and was particularly shocked when she then fell to the floor, uh, clearly in a very, very bad way. There were shrieks and cries, um, but in the chaos, Hanbal, Adelikar and Norsa fled through the crowd and got back to their ship. But it was on the way back to the ship that Hanbal fell, the poison taking hold of him in the way it had Kaiguna. Norsa grabbed him, carried him back to the ship. Their mission was obviously a success because Kaiguna, it seemed, was dying on the floor behind them. But unfortunately, Hanbal couldn't be revived. And for the second time, oh, no. the captain of the Spectral Corsair was dead I know, you get through captains like blooming spinal tap get through drums that's why that's why they, it was called the captain's curse that episode in in hindsight anyway <laughs> yes yeah, so I'd, I'd i'd made a number of roles on how powerful the potion would be uh, the poison would be and those roles basically got loads and loads of successes um so the guys didn't know how how well a reap had done in making this concoction and they each had two doses, and Tony put his whole vial in his drink. So I, I decided immediately then, okay, whoever drinks it is going to have to take two attacks from the poison. And Hanbel resisted the first one, but the second one um, quitted him, and Tony rolled 66 <laughs> on the crit, <laughs> which basically meant something in his brain had burst because of the poison. Uh, and, he went, and he went down, and he's dead. Uh, I had I hadn't I hadn't expected anyone to die in that game at all. There was very little fighting going on. In fact, I think they they ended up fighting a brief fight with one of the guards after it became clear that they'd poisoned Kaiguna or they were something was going on. Um, but that was a very short little fight. Otherwise, there'd been no combat or anything in that game. And still, Tony was dead. So sorry, Tony. He's planning now on rolling up as his character, Sister Mariam, who's still on board the ship. And Sister Marion was the Alarms Temple um, covert spy who had been masquerading as a witch smeller on, on Coriolis. So uh, he's going to roll up her as his character oh, and take that on. That's a good character. Yeah, yeah, it works really well. But now we only have one character left who is on the original crew. 
<laughs> Everybody else is the new character that's come in. Uh, Shows you how deadly this it, system it is. Does, it does. Uh, it's a good game, though. It was a good and, game. Yeah. Well, that's good. The, the, you know, that's great fun. Um, I did fall asleep halfway through. What, what was it about the drones you were talking about? <laughs> well, if you missed it... <laughs> Sorry, that joke doesn't work you, since we had a conversation about... Um, but if you missed it, you'll just have to listen to the podcast. <laughs> or maybe... If you, if, you, if, you, if you fell asleep in it, then you clearly have to do the editing this time. <laughs> ah, I edited the last one. I know, one. but it's your, it's your uh, punishment for being sarky. <clears throat> Talk, talking of talking of the podcast, though, yes. we've got some podcast news, um, and that is uh, that we're doing really well. Um, <laughs> we've got uh, about six hundred odd subscribers. Brilliant. I'm very wary yeah. of these figures. Um, we've seen uh, oh, coming. Well, this is our ninetieth episode. I know. How, for a start, how on earth is it? No, I know. I know. We've had quite a lot of um, actual plays in there, but when I saw uh, that figure, I thought. Blimey, ninety! I hadn't realised it was. I know uh, we did do thirty-one for um, uh, the month of uh, RPG. Oh, okay, all right. You counted so that. All right. Okay. Short ones there. <laughs> but still, I'm yeah. I'm quite proud of the fact that it's ninety episodes. Um, and we're seeing about well, coming on to up to about three thousand um, downloads a month. Brilliant, yeah. Which means that my the cheap way of hosting that I had originally when. This was just a little experiment. I didn't know whether it's going to be popular. Was, when, when, uh, when we thought we might, when we thought we might only ever have one, one. Yeah, podcast, we might have only ever episode. had one. Yeah. And I wasn't going to fork out on a hosting service for one episode of a podcast. <laughs> no. So uh, I, I booked it in with AWS, which is really cheap at the lower levels because it basically you pay fractions of a cent for uh, for every transaction, as it were. But now that we're getting 3,000 downloads, that's costing me about 20 quid a month, $20 a month. Um, and we ought to be paying prop for a proper podcast. Host. So after this episode's gone out, um, or maybe while it's going hmm. out, we'll be transferring uh, to a new feed. Now, I hope as listeners, you won't have any disruption to that feed. Uh, things will go ahead as normal. We'll be, But if, if you do... Uh, our, our website is going to be hosted on um, uh, simplehost. dot Simplecast. Simple simplecast. Sorry, did I say simplecast? It's simplehost. It's, yeah, it's simplecast. simplecast. dot com. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, if you if you need to resub, you know, if you need to find a new RSS feed, then come to effect spelled e f f e k t dot simplecast.com and there'll be links to the new rss feed there but hopefully i will um be submitting that rss feed to all your various directories itunes users probably last of all and in the meantime we'll be keeping the amazon one running so hopefully yeah. you won't notice any disruptions if you do though um come and find us on simplecast that is effect dot simplecast cool yes but but with that that's probably enough for one day, don't you think, Matt? Yeah, yeah. I think so. We've been talking for an hour and a quarter. We have. Um, so uh, next time, uh, next time you're going to be talking about repairing ships. I was awake for that. Bit. <laughs> I will. I've also got um, that other bit of homework that I was going to do, which uh, I might try and work up as well for next time. But we'll see how it goes around um, managing NPCs as your um, your entourage, your group. Particularly if you were going to be playing Forbidden Lands one to one, 
following our conversation last time. But uh, I'll tell you what. I mean, have you if you got some firm ideas for that, then I'll let you do that. But funny enough, I was just thinking. You'll let me do it. Thank, thanks, Matt. That's be... kind. <laughs> <laughs> mm, partnership. I was thinking actually, partnership here. Yeah, it, you know. <laughs> Blimey. Yeah, uh, you guys do have a hanger on, don't you? From Forbidden Land, uh, we do. Uh, yes, Twinebeard, that that uh, escaped slave. Uh, so that, that's from, that's what reminded me of it. Early on in the yeah, that's what reminded me of it because he he was one of the three guys who tempted to rob us, and he accepted the offer to remain with us. So that's kind of what what made me reminded me that that was something I was uh, I've I've been thinking about. Well, I mean, I was going to say, do you want me to have a first pass at that for the next adventure? Since I'm the GM. And um, well, if you want to, but I've, as you know, I've already done quite a lot of work on that concept. For oh yes, for, but you've done that sort of work for things. a secret project that we're not going <laughs> to we be uh, going talking to about. <laughs> so don't say that. <laughs> okay. Cool. Okay. Well, you could adapt that secret project, maybe. Well, um, the, re- the thing is, the repair thing is very short anyway, so uh, uh, we could possibly chuck okay. in both. We'll see. Smash. Cool. Well, I think that's probably enough for one day. So, unless you have anything else to say, Matt? No, uh, I think it is time for us both to say goodbye. Goodbye, and may the icons bless your adventures. You have been listening to The Coriolis Effect, presented by Fiction Suit with the RPG Gods, with music by Stars on a Black Sea, used with permission of Free League Publishing. Imagery from NASA and the Hubble Space Telescope, brought to you by Wikimedia Commons. Typeface is code by Font Fabric. <laughs>